Wouldn't it be great if Christians could talk about the Bible and various issues without fighting or arguing or name-calling? It'd be so awesome if we could just sit down, have a cup of coffee, discuss, and even if we disagree, treat each other with respect. That's what this podcast is all about, kind, loving Christian conversations. It's not a sermon, not a Bible class. It's just followers of Jesus talking about life and faith. I hope this show encourages you to start conversations like this with people in your life. I'm Wes McAdams, and I want to welcome you to the Crosstalk Podcast. Today, I want you to hear a conversation that I had with my friend Brandon Edwards. Living in various countries around the world, he's seen oppression and injustice up close and personal. He spent time with the victims and perpetrators and heroes who are actively working to stop human trafficking and slavery. I'll warn you, this is a challenging conversation, but it's an important one. There's a world of people out there who desperately need to hear the good news about Jesus, and we need to be sending heroes of faith onto the spiritual battlefield. I hope you find this conversation encouraging and challenging. Okay, so I guess my first question is, what would you say are some of the uh, the biggest human rights issues and injustices going on around the world that you're aware of? Well, around the world, that's you know that's a pretty large uh, pocket of people when we actually think about it. I, I'd start off by stating that most of us don't realize that there's more slaves today than what there have been in history combined, and that's a number that most people can't comprehend. I, from my understanding, the number is somewhere between 32 to 38 million people who currently live in some form of slavery and or bondage. Um, and then thinking about historically, we always just assume, I don't know if your mind does this too, but when I see the old movies and things like that, when they portray the ancient times and they just seem to be hundreds of thousands of millions of slaves, that wasn't necessarily the same. The numbers of population have so exploded in the last uh, you know, century or two centuries or so um, that have dwarfed the numbers of the ancient times of how many people were actually there. So we have more people in, in slavery today than we have had in history. And, and that's something that I think most people, especially American Christians, just cannot grasp or even imagine in their own mindset what that would look like or how that is actually portrayed. Because when we think slavery uh, or we think injustices, we, we typically think of just our own history. Uh, and we typically think back to the horrors of this, you know, pre-Civil War America and even the last hundred years in America with the civil rights movement and the things we have there. But the reality is, is that there is so much happening on a scale that many of us cannot even comprehend when it comes to um, human rights abuses worldwide um, in the in the in you know in the realms of um, actual forced bondage and slavery, um, sexual exploitation of children and minors, the sexual exploitation of most women, a lot of Asian countries, and you see and we look at them and go, well, they're just prostitutes. No, they're in forced servitude. If they don't do something, then they die or their food is withheld or their children starve. Um, that is a form of slavery, not a form of just prostitution. There's so much more that is going on around the world that we can't even grasp our minds around it because many of us can't think beyond just what we've always seen in our own culture and our own context. That's where I would start with a lot of people is just make them realize this is a worldwide problem and it goes far beyond just us. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's just mind boggling to think about the more slaves now than, than the rest of the history. So what, how would we define? So you, you mentioned sex slaves, um, so mm-hmm. that that's a portion, my understanding, that's a portion of those that would be in bondage or in slavery. What other types of, so how would we define that, I guess? Because again, when you say that, 
I think that we have two categories in our mind. I think the the mm-hmm. majority of people probably think about, you know, African slaves being shipped over mm-hmm. European slave trade, um, you know, in chains. Correct. And so we think of that. And we, so we think about the American South um, 1800s. And, and then and then I think that our mind is starting to grasp the fact that there is uh, human trafficking and y- human sex trafficking. And uh, so there are sex slaves around the world. Um, so what other types of bondage is there that we're unaware of? Sure. One of the key ones I would say, and you find this a lot in places like India, Bangladesh, and other places, is what is basically called indentured servitude. Uh, And what happens is, let's say you have a a, a parent who gets sick and needs a medicine. So you borrow money from an individual uh, to buy those medicines, but the rate at which they give you and that you must repay the money makes it to where you are never able to actually repay the finances. So it can be something as simple as you know, uh, I knew of a guy that we met um, a few years back, $120 is what he borrowed total. And now that's a lot of money in India, but it's still not a you know life-changing amount of money for most of us here in the States. $120 to, to save his father's life, but then he was given a rate of basically 200% per year that he would have to pay back. So at mm-hmm. some point in time, he was going to have to pay back $240. And um, that grew every year. So by every year, it grew 200%. So if he only paid off $60 at one point in time, then the next year, he owed 60 more on top of the 240. And so suddenly he owed 320, way more than he'd ever started off with to begin with, because he just could not catch up. Now, if he then um, has family members to try to work it off, work it off also, they become property also. And you see this a lot in brick kilns. Uh, places that that break rocks and a lot of places across India, um, rock quarries. And what happens then is if then those, they have children, those children become part of that same thing. And you can have a, a whole entire generation. I met two families that had uh, four generations of one family all working, trying to pay off a debt from 30 years ago. Wow. All trying to work out and never being able to because of the ridiculous amount of interest fees to save the life of the individual going back 40 years, 30, 40 years ago, and it just kept on compounding and compounding, and it is a form of slavery. Um, it is a form of indentured servitude where you could say, hey, money was exchanging hands, and they're paying them, but they're, they're paying them never enough to be able to actually get themselves out of it. Uh, children rolling cigarettes, children making bricks, it's the same thing. They have to make a certain amount of bricks or a certain amount of uh, cigarettes every day, or they get beaten severely. And again, it's because their parents owed money to some individual at some point in time that they'll never be able to pay back. And so it becomes a form of, of, of indentured servitude. And it's something we don't see here, um, obviously in the States nearly as much, but it's on large scales. Um, you have, like, from my understanding, just a couple months back, I saw um, a story from some friend of mine who were working over there in, in they literally wrote a whole entire article about a family of over 30 individuals, all from one family, that were all rescued from one um, brick kiln. And um, the total that was owed was like $212, but they'd been working there for like 18 years. Wow. Um, and they could not get out of it. Um, very little empathy, very little understanding, and it's just the way people um, abuse one another. That's, that would be a secondary one outside of the sexual exploitation of women and children. Then you have actual slavery owning people, and that still does happen today. Uh, and then this other one would definitely be the key, indentured servitude. You know, and, and I guess that in my ignorance, you know, growing up, and I would hear people talk about things like sweatshops and different things like that. And, and 
in, in my thinking, I was thinking that, you know, I mean, at least they have jobs and, you know, they have to make money for their families. And so even if they're kids, you know, it's, it's good that they have, have a job. But what we don't realize is that we're thinking of a system like ours where you can save up money Correct. and eventually you can, you know, move yeah. up or whatever the case may be. We think about a free market system or, or some other kind of economic system that is, is totally different than what these people are, again, like you said, are, are slaves and in bondage to that in, in really a situation where they are quite literally being oppressed and injustice is, is happening. Absolutely correct. And that's one of the key distinctions that we have to realize. And it's because we come from such a cultural context where we only apply things that we understand in our world. And we haven't realized that the American first world context does not equate with what most other human beings are experiencing worldwide. Um, now, you can make a case for some European countries and some other places out there, but the reality is is that most of the world's population, I'd say probably 90% of the world's population, does not see the world the same way that we view it, um, does not see it through the same lenses that we view it. Uh, I mean, we have such a huge uh, uproar right now over our own immigration system. And uh, part of me, you know, mourns and empathizes instantly when I see the scenes and I see the things that are going on. But I also remember how often people are abusing um, the people who are then stuck. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You come to, you come here and you end up in a terrible situation where you may have your children separated from you. But where you're coming from, you may be running from somebody who has had you in indentured servitude for the last 20 years, or you may be being sold. Um, this is one of those things most Americans don't realize um, that at, I believe it's the Atlanta airport, uh, Hartsfield International, and also the Dallas airport are two of the two of the number one, basically the top airports in the world, some of the top airports in the world for human trafficking and smuggling of individuals coming here for one thing, being told they're coming here for one thing and then being exploited for another. Um, so much so that there was a, an article just a few, um, I want to say a few months ago, that I was reading from a friend of mine um, that works with a human rights and human trafficking group in L.A., where he specifically noted that the number one commodity that many gangs are now moving to is women and children and sexual exploitation. And the reason he told me they were moving away from drugs and guns but towards women and children is because it's a commodity that can be used over and over and over again. Wow. And it was just disheartening and sickening to hear that. And so when I see this whole, uh, you know, immigration thing that's going on right now, part of me wants to go, don't you dare think that people aren't exploiting this whole situation right now to their benefit using our political back and forth to actually hurt and harm children on a scale we can't even imagine. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, that brings up so many questions in my mind. One would be, one would be as Christians— as the church, I, I think that that there is there is a a large portion of of our thinking that says something like, well, as the church and as Christians, we should really just be concerned about quote unquote spiritual things, you know, and and we hmm. should just be concerned about you know where people go when they die. Essentially, you know, we should just be care, care we should just care about their soul, sure. um, and not and not concern ourselves with world politics or what's going on in the world. Um, but the way, the way I read scripture is that injustice and oppression, uh, should always be the concern of God's people, that God's people must, if nothing else, speak out against 
anyone in the world being oppressed and taken advantage of and injustice happening and uh, people, I, I, I can't even, and I don't think most of us can even fathom what a life of, of forced labor, but especially sexual mm-hmm. exploitation, what that would do to someone's mind and heart and soul and psyche. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't even imagine the depravity of a culture and groups of people that, uh, that live in that, in that world. So, I mean, so speak to that if you would, I mean, what, why should, why sure. should this concern us? Why should it be on our radar? Why should this be something that we think about and preach about and teach about and make people aware of? Sure. Well, I'll start off by saying this, that every human being is created in the image of God. And to me, that's, as a Christian, that's instantly the reason. That's, that's why right. I care. Yeah. It's because they are made in the image of God. There is a, you know, a spark of life there that God has given. Uh, and, you know, beyond the, the, the concept of saying, you know, we need to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations to every tribe and every tongue. I look at this also as the fact that I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I've got three kids now and I've got two daughters. Um, and, before I had kids, I, I worked in, with some groups, and I think I shared with you, I can't say a whole lot about it, but I worked with some groups that dealt with specifically in human trafficking um, in Asian countries, including on-the-ground work there. And one of the things that I learned very quickly that constantly just kept on sticking with me was this is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's son. And I remember telling myself, if I have a daughter one day, how, am I, how would I feel about this? And I can tell you right now, having two daughters and a son now, um, I don't understand why people don't realize how people can't grasp the importance of every individual life. And maybe this is where we've lost um, uh, that little bit of empathy in the world because it's so easy to see an us versus them mentality or uh, the other people. Um, I can only reach the people that I have everyday contact with, and I just don't believe that. I believe that we can reach um, everyone. I mean, uh, I I always joke and say my dad taught me growing up that the, the crazy notion about the first century church was that they, when Jesus said to go on the world, uh, to go into all the world, that they actually believed they were supposed to do that in their very lifetime. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> that was their premise, their purpose, and we are called to do the same thing no matter what it is. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, one of my favorite verses out there, specifically says, um, encourage the oppressed, seek justice, uh, plead the case of the widow, uh, encourage the fatherless. All of those aspects, and in fact, even if you go into the New Testament, you see what true religion is. You see what God wants us to do, and all of those, ironically, have to do with other aspects of exploitation we see. Land grabbing is one I haven't mentioned yet, but that's a key one too, where where a widow, where a husband dies, and a widow, this happens a lot in Africa, and people will step in and steal the land that her husband and her had owned and had worked for her entire life, take the land from her by violence or by force, and to where she has no recourse whatsoever unless somebody steps in and pays the legal fees to fight the fact that she still owns that land. That is a widow who is being abused because there's no one there to protect her. Um, children whose parents die are so much so vulnerable to end up in systems of abuse. And man, we should so open our eyes to what's happening within our own um, foster care systems. And uh, where I'm so proud of some of the Christians who have stepped into those areas. Because the horror stories that I deal with with kids that I know have come from that um, that environment where it's just been almost worse than what happened to them in real life. 
the key component for Christians and for churches in general is to realize that not only should they be having an impact and they should be caring about these things, it is the very heart and nature of God to love all. And we miss it. It's such a quoted verse, but we miss it. For God so loved who? It's the world. The world's not just the, the place. It's the people within it. And that he so loved them that he was willing to die for them. Yet so many of us at times, I think, have just lost that spark, lost that vision that we need to see humans for who they are. They're human beings, and they need help, and they need support, and they need empathy, but they need action. They don't need just words. Prayer is a powerful thing, and I believe in it totally, but there's nothing quite like somebody busting down a door to save a child, busting in a, a place to say enough's enough. This is not going to happen again. For even Christian lawyers um, you know, like IJM that I've worked alongside with, stepping in on cases and saying, no, we're, we're going to fight your case for you, and we're going to show you that we have your back. And then from there, teaching them the gospel, teaching them the things that they need to know, providing the counseling and the support. And I just believe churches should have a bigger role in that. In fact, I think it's very much the role of the Christian in the church is to encourage the oppressed, plead the case of the widow, take care of the fatherless to do those very things. Yeah. In fact, I just uh, I just preached that on Sunday. I was preaching from Isaiah and Zechariah. <laughs> and I mean, all the prophets testified to that. I, I mean, in fact, Zechariah reminds the people when they want to know, is the exile over? Can we stop fasting? Is, mm-hmm. is, is this, has it been enough? Have we paid our dues, so to speak? And, and Zechariah reminds them, okay, do you, do you remember why you guys went... In, do you remember why our fathers were told that they were going into exile in the first place? Do you remember why we were being punished? It wasn't just the idolatry. It was that. But it was it was also the, the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner and the poor. And the fact that you have allowed justice to be subverted, the fact that you've allowed people to be oppressed and you haven't not only not participated in that, I, I think that mm-hmm. there's there's two things there. One is that we think as long as we're not participating in those things, that it's not really our problem. Um, but God Correct. expected his yeah. people not only to not participate, which sometimes they were participating, but to not oppress mm-hmm. people, but to speak out. And like you said, plead the widow's cause. And and we have a tendency to be very, you know, just like you said, the people that we come into contact with in our own circle, in our own neighborhood, in our own neck of the woods, and not concerned about the people all over the world uh, that are going through things. But but then there is there are the people that are right here in our own backyard, right under our noses yeah. that are being, uh, you know, taken advantage of and oppressed. And, you know, I think that uh, w- w- it, what's interesting to me is that when the issue of uh, sex trade and uh, these kind of exploitations come up, our our first instinct, and maybe it's good, is to be concerned about our own kids, you know, I, I, because there's there's yeah. cases of, you know, people being abducted and kidnapped and forced into slavery, you know, American kids that that's happening to. Um, but I think sometimes that's where our empathy ends or that's where our concern ends is, well, I got to make sure my kids are protected. It's like, well, yes, ab- absolutely. Yes. Make sure that you're monitoring what they're doing online and make sure that they're in safe places and those kind of things. But but we've got to be concerned about other people, our neighbors, uh, not just ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I mean, just just think about the thought process. You know, if it's if it's my like, you know, I told you, if it's my daughter, that's the way I kind of constantly think to myself, if this was my daughter. What would I be willing to do for this situation? 
And then I remind myself, these are all God's children. Yeah. All of these, God hurts for the people who are in these situations. And, um, and you know, just an area we haven't talked about, you wouldn't believe how many people I've met who had, who were the oppressors in these situations, who many of them were abused. Many of them were exploited. Many of them had no idea that what they were doing was wrong. Wow. No clue that the harming of others, what was wrong. In fact, their entire goal in life was to become someone that would not be preyed upon, that would not be hurt. And it creates this cycle of violence and cycle of oppression. And the way that you change that is not just education. It's not just understanding. It's not just you know the concept of love, but it's an actual um, stopping of the hand of the oppressor. You have to stop that hand of the oppressor, and that's where so often I feel like we as Christians fail. The other side is many of us don't know where to begin, and, and I'll be honest with you. Having even grown up overseas, it wasn't something I saw a lot in Italy, but when I moved to Asia and I got, uh, I met a few people and I had a couple of conversions from some guys who had been involved in human trafficking, the, that world opened up to me, and suddenly I, I, I kind of knew what to do because I saw visibly what the problem was. But so often we don't see that here. We don't even know where to begin to help these situations. But if our daughter, as you mentioned, our son, were to – if this were to happen to us, we would be up in arms in a heartbeat. You, you see a child who, who disappears from a church in a rural community, and the whole entire community jumps up to help, and, and rightfully so. Right. But if only we would do that and realize that these situations are happening every day. And it's not enough for us to be what I call uh, uh, slacktivists. They're social activists, but they're really slackers. It's great to post in, you know, something online and say, man, I'm praying for these people. I hope this works out. It's another to seek out possibilities to actually help in a situation. There's something more to it. And we need a generation of people who say, I'm not afraid of what this might lead. I'm not afraid of what's going to happen, and I'm not afraid of the consequences to my own well-being getting involved in this. I'm well aware that this is not the safest area and you know, arena of ministry to be involved in is human trafficking because there is evil. And Satan, this is how Satan works, but this is the very um, harsh reality of sin plays out in front of you, and that's something that someone has to grasp. And I've, I've said it a thousand times, and I'll say it again. We need heroes of faith to step up in, in the front lines of ministry and say, enough's enough. We're going to lead people to Christ, but we're also going to show them what true freedom looks like to be able to lead them to Christ. That's where we have to have people step in. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those practical ways. So, I mean, if somebody is just an every, everyday, ordinary, average Christian in America— what do they? What can they do in a practical way to help with the situation worldwide, or even here? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one of the key things is, and this is one of the things that I, I always encourage people is, you want to make sure you find out find out more information. So this isn't just an education plea, but this is to become. Um, to realize where it is that things are actually happening. Uh, I encouraged a group of teams a while back. I said, focus in on one area and see what you find out about that specific area. So one of them came back to me and said, well, you went to China, so I'm going to do research on China. And I said, okay, sounds great. And so they just kind of went, spent two weeks looking up facts and the, the history of things, and they found a group, ironically, this is one that I'd worked with before, and I'm going to mention IJM, it's International Justice Mission. 
Um, now, they're loosely based. They're all, I would say, believers, but uh, loosely based on the terminology of Christian. Um, <clears throat> but they're phenomenal people, and they're lawyers and the rest who actually use their skill sets to go into these foreign nations to actually apply existing United Nations law. It is it is illegal everywhere in the world for there to be slavery. Okay, there's like there's no country in the in the world that allows it legally. It's always being done because the local police do nothing about it, because they don't they themselves don't know how. So they go in and educate. So if you're a lawyer, if you're a police officer, there are groups that you can volunteer with and even go over and help um, to actually facilitate. Um, um, help raids. If you're a counselor, a nurse, you can spend time overseas with these groups. And by the way, it's not always in Asia and all these other countries in Africa. It's also a lot from Central and South America. You know, and there's groups like Latin American Missions and others who do phenomenal, phenomenal works in those areas where there are partnering groups that you can go and visit. You can go and tour these facilities that help these women and children and others who need help from these exploitations. So there are practical ways in which you can get involved through existing things. Um, the other one, and this is the one that I'll challenge people, is um, we need a generation of missionaries who are unafraid to go into places where, I'll be honest, most Christians within Churches of Christ are not going. Yeah. We're not going to the hard, the hard places and the dangerous places. We're not going into the, the depths of some of these places like we used to. Um, believe it or not, we don't have a whole lot going to even Europe where sexual exploitation is at its highest it's been in a long time. Because of so many immigrant groups, so many people coming through there, you have so many people who can just disappear into a crowd. We need a generation of people who will rise up and say, enough's enough. We're going to show the love of Christ, and we're going to do it through our lives, day in and day out. Um, I was blessed to work alongside men and women such as that in my time in Asia, which showed me um, what it looks like to take care of, of victims and of the oppressed on a daily basis. Because it's not just there's not just a fix-all policy. There's not just a fix-all law. The laws are already there. People will break them because that's what sin does. It's what evil does, and it's what power and sex and money do. But we can make a difference if we actually learn to start sacrificing beyond ourselves. So, like I told you before, we need, we need heroes. We need heroes of faith to step up. And I don't care what age you are. Some of the most um, spiritually fearless people I've ever met are, are 16, 17, 18 years old. They're young and they're ready to go. We just got to stop talking them out of it. Yeah. You know, we got to yeah. start talking them into doing the things that naturally come very easy to them, which is, hey, I want to go. Yeah. And then we need to train them and we need to send them to serve and to seek to save the lost. But to do that in a context where they can help. I mean, you've seen this probably at our Christian schools, how many are graduating with nursing degrees. There's just so many. Man, I, I just want to take a whole group of them, send them somewhere to have them work just to take care of the physical needs of people to then teach them about the the loving healing nature of Jesus in the same, in the same way. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, there's so many, that, that brings so many things to my mind. You know, I think about what Paul says in first Corinthians chapter seven, and he's talking about marriage and, and saying, we need people like me that are single that can go and be mm -hmm. fully devoted to the work of the Lord. And, and, and you and I know that when you have, when you're married and you have kids, it's great. And that's a ministry in and of itself, but your ministry mm -hmm. in, in the, in the world changes and, and you have to change with it and you have to adapt what you're doing because you have kids to take care of and you have other responsibilities. And Paul says for those that are unmarried, their only responsibility, the only thing they have to think about is pleasing the Lord. And so, you know, we don't, we don't preach that message yeah. in the church very well anymore to say, Hey, listen, if you're not married, that's, 
that's great. That's we need single people that don't have the responsibility yeah. of children to go over to these places that are frankly dangerous. And we we need you to yeah. serve in those capacities and and bringing that to the forefront and and letting people know that 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 is to be uh, sought after as well. I mean, marriage. Sure. Yeah. Seek after marriage yeah. and a married life. But we have this picture in our head of missionaries of being, you know, a young husband and wife with a little one on the way and going over to, you yeah. know, wherever. And, you know, he preaches and she sews. And, you know, and we just have this this mm-hmm. picture of what it is to be a missionary family or to be a missionary single. And we need we need, like you said, single missionaries or married missionaries for that matter. But it just the, the more people you bring into it, the more complicated it become, becomes, I guess. But uh, sure. we, we need to be bringing this to the forefront and letting people know that this is something to to aspire to, to be to yeah. be courageous, to be a hero, to go into all the world and to proclaim that Jesus is king and that the forces of darkness have been defeated and and to preach that message Absolutely. to the oppressed and to the people that the, the first century people were preaching it to and and embracing what Jesus says is that following him and and being gospel proclaimers is a dangerous line of work you have to pick up your cross and follow him and we've so watered that down because we live in a safe environment and we tend to stay in safe environments and tend to discourage people from going into dangerous environments that we've watered it down and and taken the edge off of what Jesus is calling many of us to do. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I was in uh, I was in Athens, Greece last summer with a group of teenagers, um, the youngest of which I think was uh, 14, 15 years old that went with me. Their parents are my heroes in and of themselves because they wanted their daughter to have that experience. Yeah. Um, they went with me, and they had an opportunity to work with Iranian refugees, Afghani refugees, um, and new converts even to Christianity from uh, from Islam um, that were all part of a refugee program there working with one of the churches uh, right outside of Athens. And sitting there listening to the stories, um, I, I sat and interviewed a man um, from Iran who uh, we shot a video with, and, and it was just a fascinating story of him being beaten, um, his wife being beaten, him they miscarrying a child because of the beatings that took place, because of their uh, search for truth, um, their uh, escape, the moment that they laid down on the top of a mountaintop just to die because they said they had no water left, um, listening to these stories and then watching these young men and young women sit there with their children and, and, and play and teach them Bible stories and to show them the, the compassion and the love of God. Here you have real-life refugees and real-life people who are, have been beaten and almost killed for, for faith and for their search for God. And, um, uh, you know, it was really tough at times because um, you wouldn't believe how much flack I got from people who had no ties whatsoever to our trip or churches and didn't know any of the kids just because they heard of the ages of some of the people that went with us on the trip. That there's this idea, and I, I find this ironic, that sometimes we have – they're old enough to become followers of Christ, when you know, become baptized, but they're not old enough to seems to serve him in some ways. Mm. And that to me has been a mentality that I think has, has uh, hampered us for quite a while. Uh, if you look at um, – um, you know, I have a lot of crossings through my travels with the Mormon church. Uh, have you ever wondered how many missionaries they have? I actually found out the number. It's, it's about 70,000 at any given point in time. And you mentioned this earlier. It's because – and the main reason is because they're single, yeah, and they can. 
and they've they've been trained specifically for a time of their life to be able to go to set it aside to go into sometimes some very dangerous places but that's not become our total goal for our next generation of kids and the reality is i found that there's a lot of them that are wanting that that's exactly what they want to do they want to go and serve this generation of millennials across the u.s in general uh, it's the number one generation ever for wanting to work for nonprofits. Wow. Um, they have a deep desire to give to things that make an impact. It's why they all go to coffee houses that sponsor wells in Africa. They want to feel like they're doing something. And if the church can grasp hold of this generation and realize that they can go anywhere and do all things through Christ, it's an amazing thing to see the stories that will be witnessed and the stories that will be told of a generation of Christians who grow and, and change the world um, in human trafficking, change the world in uh, abuse and sexual exploitation of minors, that they can do so many great things. And, and let me just also add this. Some of the greatest missionaries that I've ever worked alongside were single women um, because they were able to do things that I was never able to do even as a preacher. They were able to empathize and open a home to people and to women in societies and cultures that I never was able to have an impact. And I'd never seen it until I saw it that you know firsthand. I'd never thought I'd experience it quite like I did. Um, and this was specifically in Asia. 90% of the converts in Asia are women. And for so many of them, it was such a difficult thing because the Chinese culture, um, because they, there's such a reverence of the male in general, that sometimes it was hard for them to open up about their real struggles because of how they viewed male leadership. But having those single women who could be with them and share with them, they were some of the most powerful uh, evangelists I ever saw when it came to personal one-on-one Bible study with so many of those women. And we miss out on these contextually if we just look at things based off of American church and the way we've always done things. We may not see, uh, we may have Christian women out there who don't see their value. They don't know how they could do that. That's just called living. Living as a Christian in many of these cultures is mind-altering. It's mind-blowing. And when we can grasp that and encourage that, man, you're going to see a, a world change for the right reasons. Yeah, two, two things that that made me think of is, one, I have, I have two sisters that were both single women, obviously, mm-hmm. missionaries, and they had such a difficult time raising support because nobody wants to support a single yeah. woman. Because I, and, and it wasn't, I mean, you know... The, the thinking was, well, what are they going to do? You know, I, and, yeah. and again, we, we think <laughs> exactly. about preaching and, and that in so many ways. And, and this kind of is an overarching thing for our whole conversation, I guess, is that that in so many ways we think of Christianity and we limit Christianity to what happens in the church building one hour a week. And and there is a whole yes. there is a whole week of hours where we live out our faith and there's a whole world out there where we must live out our faith. And, and what happens that one hour is incredibly important. It shapes what we do with the rest of our week. Uh, but, but we cannot limit Christianity or, or what a, a minister or a missionary or a, an evangelist or whatever, a servant, what they're called to do in the world. We can't limit that to one hour a week. And we, our thinking on that is so skewed. Um, I'm not sure yeah. what the other thing I was going to say was, but, uh, oh, millennials. <laughs> um, but but I, I think that you're exactly right, that our millennials get such a bad rap. And, and people mm-hmm. have it, such a tendency to talk about some of the negatives of that generation. 
when there are so many positive things that we are not tapping into to the extent that we should, and that is their desire yeah. to help and to serve the world. I mean, James says that religion is it's caring for the widows and the orphans and keeping yourself unstained from the world. I mean, the, the Bible is full of this instruction to go and serve people, and this millennial generation has that at their very heart. And what we've got to do is... Yeah. is you know, embrace that and say that that's the heart of Jesus as well. And to go in there, not to disconnect that from the gospel, but to show how that is at the very heart of the gospel. Exactly. I mean, you, you, you hit the nail on the head there when it, when it all comes down to it, empowering a generation to do what falls called comes naturally to them is leadership, especially when it's a biblical attribute that, that is often lacking within our church bodies. But you and I both know that there are moments where um, it's just it's easier to say no than to do hard things. This is not easy. What we're talking about is not easy, and I'm well aware of that. It's a it's a reality that I live every day. It's I feel like I'm constantly trying to encourage people to step out on faith, and I know it's there. I know that they want to do it, but they just don't know either how or why, because there's uh, you know there's a thousand reasons why not to do something. And one of the greatest moments I think I ever grasped in my life was when I realized that all it took was one reason why I should. <laughs> you can give me yeah. a thousand reasons, but just give me one why I should. And if that one reason is because God told me to, that should be enough for any of us in the church. Yeah. That there should be no other, I mean, all the things that can possibly think of the why it will not work. We, those are things to overcome. They're not reasons to not do it. Those are things that we think through, but they're not reasons why we don't do something. And to give you a great example, one of my – the churches I worked with for a while back there in, in Atlanta, just a wonderful church family, the Buford Church. I remember uh, six teenagers walked into my office one day and were like, hey, we've decided we want to go to China. And I went, okay. And I jokingly just said, all right, go plan the trip, and they left. I didn't think anything else about it. Two weeks later, they walk into my office, and they've contacted a missionary over there, figured out the cost, figured out visas, figured out everything, and put it in front of me. And I just went, okay. I All right. So I grabbed it, and I went to one of our elders, and I handed it to him. I jokingly said to him, I said, all right, you tell him no. And I just put it that way. Yeah. And I was just totally kind of joking about it. And about a week later, he said, hey, we're going to have the teens come in and meet with us. And I said, okay, this is one of the elders' meetings. They came in. They did the whole entire presentation. All six of them presented to the elders what they wanted to do. And then the elders, after they left, turned around to me, and they said, all right, we'll, we'll make it happen if you'll go with them. And I said, sure, I'll be more than happy to go with them if one of you guys goes with me too. And one of the elders stepped up and said, I'll go. Wow. Um, looking back now, about seven, eight years, I'd say, and they've been over there five, six, seven times that, as a church. Many of that church have actually adopted children from there. Uh, they've worked with care centers. They just—it's become what used to be based, you know, fear. And I don't want to automatically ascribe fear to everything, but just the mentality within our church so often is this, especially a place like China. We just look at it so foreign. Yeah. But that church was like, we're not going to let fear stop us. Mm. And now they're in. I mean, every summer their teams go all over the world, from Scotland to. They go to China, they go to Nicaragua, they go all over the place because they, I really do believe they grasped that leadership grasped and said, we're going to lead and we're going to show these teams that we're not afraid. 
and we're going to give them uh, opportunities and possibilities to go out and change the world. And man, have they? I mean, there's probably five or six of them right now studying missions and Bible in school, and they're just doing phenomenal things in the world because they've been empowered to do something more than just say, man, we're praying for those people. They've been given opportunities to actually play out their faith each and every day, and that's a powerful thing for a church to do. Yeah, and think about how those kids, how those young people changed the course of that congregation. I mean, not only did the elders have the the wisdom and the, the love for the Lord and the love for the lost to embrace that that plan that they laid out, but the courage of young people to say, we're going to take the bull by the horns and we're going to, we're going to run with this thing and we're going to be courageous. And, and that audacity to speak up and say, we want to do this uh, has changed not only their lives, but the lives of everybody that it's touched. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a beautiful thing to experience firsthand. Uh, and it gave me great hope. It really did. And like I said, to this day, I love following what they're doing as a congregation and even the leaders. I keep up with them at times and a lot of the teams and they're just um, there's just there was a mindset switch that kind of switched on um, that I believe was already there. But it was just like it, they just hit fast forward in such a beautiful way um, to where they're a leader in those things. And it's one of those things that I want so badly just to happen in every congregation of the Lord's church. We have to believe that. The church truly is the gift, the greatest gift that God has given this world is the encouragement and the beauty of, of being able to meet together. And what so often is missing in our world of pain and suffering and exploitation is the church, which is the exact opposite. It's meant to be a place of, of calm and of peace and of family with the very attributes that are so often missing from the lives of those who have been exploited, um, those who have been taken advantage of. And if when the church grasps this, grasps the beauty of what it means to truly be the church that God has set forth for this world, we become the most beautiful sight, the most beautiful taste, the most beautiful smell and aroma in the world to the lost and dying. And that's where suddenly the physical needs of these people meets the spiritual needs that every one of them has as a, a person made in the image of God. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you found this encouraging and I hope you'll subscribe and maybe give us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. As always, I love you, God loves you, and I hope you have a wonderful day.